Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. While we're transitioning, um, to just to clarify if this wasn't already known, when we head over to the new building, uh, it is the intention uh, no longer to have uh, two services, the Saturday night and the Sunday morning, but to combine both of those services. So that uh, Saturday night service is uh, uh, closely, uh, quickly coming to its end. Thankful for the folks that have been willing to go to that. We know there's some folks who have preferred it. Glad that's worked out. For other folks, they've come simply because it was a need that was there, freed up space on Sunday mornings. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, the space that was freed up has now been taken, which is a great thing. And uh, so when we head over there, it's looking like uh, about the middle of July-ish uh, would be our first service over there. So we're supposed to supposed to be taking possession around the 1st of July, probably take us a couple of weeks to get moved and transition. So we're shooting for the middle of July Please continue to be in prayer about the whole project. Romans 12, let's read 3 through 8, and then ask for our God's help to glorify His name as He teaches us. So begin with me in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. A great God in heaven, Lord, we who are your people who have received forgiveness of sins by your grace, by work that we did not do, work that you accomplished. We who have been saved from hell and filled with gratitude, we do now bow ourselves before you and say, glory be to your name. And we want everything we do, every breath that we take, word that we speak, thought that we think, act that we do, and service that we render, we want it all to glorify you. So God, we, we bow before you and say, as an act of worship, we want to obey and serve. So we pray, speak, O Lord. Teach us your truths. Plant them deep within us. Bring about obedience and service so that our lives bear fruit. So Father, we pray that you will work in this time, sending your spirit, uh, providing every grace that's necessary so that we can understand your word. And then in the understanding of your word, you produce 
all the multitude of benefits and fruit that you bring by the power of your word. Teach us, convict us, sanctify us, grow us, challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us, on and on, quicken, awaken, cause scales to fall from eyes, call us into service, bring us to obedience, oh God, we pray. And, and so, so we ask all that's needed for that to happen, please provide. I ask for grace to be able to preach, to be useful to your people, to bring the food that you have prepared. Help all of us as we receive your word. We pray for our little ones in the next room. Glorify your name in their little hearts as they learn your word. So please, God, protect this time Give us grace, and we ask it all through the name of your Son. Amen. When an orchestra comes together to perform a, a symphony, there might be 50 different pieces where each member plays their instrument, brings their strengths together in order to produce a, a sound each sound lifted up, one that is in harmony and producing something beautiful. Each member of that orchestra will bring their strengths, contribute, and the result is something that is beautiful. Even, even though an orchestra might not be your cup of tea preference of music, uh, still, if you ever get the chance to uh, listen to one uh, live uh, in person, the, the result can be uh, remarkably moving. It's so beautiful. But it's, it's something really to think about how it all comes together and how all the different sounds join together to produce this harmonious note. The woman who plays the flute might be weak in a lot of other instruments. The man who tings the triangle might have weakness in 15 other kinds of ways, but together they contribute their strengths and the result is something that is beautiful. And in a similar kind of way, God has brought together the people who have been plucked out of the flames of hell Bought by the blood of his son, he, he joins us not, not only in the universal church, but in a local church. He brings us together a whole bunch of different notes with different strengths, having a lot of weaknesses and sins that we're still wrestling to overcome. But God's designed it that we bring our strengths together and we contribute them in order that we're able to accomplish the purposes of God on earth. There are things he wants us to be about, giving our life to. There's a certain kind of man, a certain kind of woman that God wants you to become. There is obedience that he wants us to be uh, uh, offering. There is service, service that he wants us to be laboring in for the building of his kingdom, to the bringing of the rule of heaven to earth, to the glorifying of the name of Christ. And the way that all of this happens is when we come together and contribute these strengths. And one of the things I'm trying to emphasize is we will each have a lot of weaknesses and there's grace that's needed. We all need each other's strengths to make up for our weaknesses, but we are contributing these ways that God has enabled each one of us to be able to serve Jesus is ultimately the one who is building his church. Make no mistake from his throne, he is doing it. But in this incredible mystery, he's doing it through the efforts of his people, 
through the contributions, through the obedience, through the service of his people, as the Holy Spirit stirs and moves and awakens within us desire and burden in order to serve. And the building of Jesus's church is the plan of God in this age. This is what it is about. And in teaching us uh, how all of this works, we've seen Romans 12, uh, this section we've been looking at, teach us about these various kinds of strengths. These various kinds of ways that we can be contributing, these various spiritual gifts. This passage lists seven of them. And, and I want to pause for a second just, just to make clear that we understand who the passage is speaking to. These spiritual gifts, it, it, it's not the case that God gives a spiritual gift to every human who lives on the planet. These spiritual gifts are specifically... Uh, worked, instilled, given to those who have believed the gospel and been made right with God. It is specifically for those who have come to God through Christ in order to be saved, believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mankind fell in our sin to a place that we're now under judgment unless something miraculous happens. The plan of God was to make a way uh, to offer forgiveness of sins. Jesus, the Son of God, came, lived in obedience to the Father, offered His life as a perfect substitute sacrifice, rose from the dead, and now, because the payment has been made, the invitation is given, come and be saved. You can come and have eternal life. You can come and be made right with God. But it is only for those who recognize they need this and they believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who trust in him like that, we're made a part of the family of God. If you have not yet turned to be saved, you, you need to understand where you are in relation to God. You are outside of the family of God and you're looking in at something. What we're doing right now is the, the people of God, the family of God, we're talking about what our father, what our master wants us to do. You're on the outside looking in at that. We invite you. More importantly, Jesus invites you. You can come join this family. You can come inside. But if not, you need to understand that this passage, these spiritual gifts, this is not addressing you. Your great need is to be saved. But for you who are in Christ, for every single believer, everyone who is in him, God gives, he ordains, he designs, he works, he enables in a way that each of us have a way or a collection of ways that we are able to contribute to the accomplishing of God's purposes, the building of his church. So in this list of seven spiritual gifts that are here, we've worked our way through four of them. The kids back there having a real good time learning things. That is awesome. <laughs> we've worked our way through four of them uh, and we're ready for the last three. These last three numbers, five, six, and seven are giving leadership and mercy. So I want to take each one of these, spend a little bit of time looking at each one. We'll talk about how every Christian participates and then what it means for somebody to have the spiritual gift of each one of these things. And then that'll finish up this section. So spiritual gift number five that we're ready for, the gift of giving. You notice there in verse eight, the way that it is worded, the little phrase there where it says, he who gives with liberality. 
You, you notice there with these last three, especially that with each of these spiritual gifts, there is a, there's a descriptor that's given for how each of these is to be used. So there's been this point throughout the text the one who uh, teaches or leads, it's not just you're supposed to do it. There's a certain way that it is supposed to be done. There is a certain heart uh, that is uh, attitude that is to be uh, held as these things are done. And so with giving, what we're told is he who gives is to do so with generosity, with liberality and open-handed generosity, not a tight-fisted stinginess. This is the descriptor that is most fitting forgiving. Now, this is one of those where it's obvious that it is the case that every Christian is to give. So let me spend a little bit of time talking about how every Christian participates in this, and that'll help us understand what it means then to have the spiritual gift of this. Every Christian is called to giving, and the most basic give, I'm sure you could answer this, the most basic give is what the Bible calls the tithe, uh, a tenth, okay? This is really the bare minimum, this is the bottom rung of the ladder, this is the entry into obedience, uh, this is that uh, really the word obligation is an appropriate word. We're not merely to give out of obligation, there is to be joy, but the word obligation is appropriate for the word. This is the bare minimum obligation that the creator of the universe uh, the, the one who sustains us with every blessing, whatever breath of air comes into your lungs, it's by his grace and sustaining. He says of all the blessing that comes, a tenth bare minimum is to be given to the things that he says. The book of Malachi actually explains this one along the lines of something as simple as if you rent land from a landowner in order to plant crops, and you make the deal that a certain percentage of the crops pays the landowner for the services, the book of Malachi uh, speaks of the tithe like that. Per certain percentage, creator of the universe, bare minimum. Now, when the Bible speaks though of an offering, this is something that is different than the tithe. This is something that is above the tithe. An offering is something that goes beyond the bare minimums that are there. And, and scripture, you know, scripture has a, a, just, just volumes of books worth of teaching and instruction on giving. And, and one of the things that is surprising uh, sometimes the first time that you learn it is that what the Bible has to say is a lot of it is not in the realm of command. It's in the realm of inspiration and encouragement. So yeah, there's command. We already saw that. But it's actually somewhat something noteworthy that a great deal of what Jesus would speak about, for instance, is not merely in the realm of obligation. It is stirring us to gratitude so that we want to give much. So you may think of it like this. At the end of a football season, a coach may have a, a little meeting with his players and he says, you know, boys in the off season, make sure you're in the weight room. So let's say that in that meeting, one of the players raises his hand and goes, coach, how much do I have to lift? Now, what, what, what's the mentality in that player's mind? What's he asking? What's the bare minimum that I have to do in order to keep you happy kind of thing? Well, he's, he's thinking in terms of what's the least amount of work I have to do. The coach might respond something along the lines of, well, how much gain do you want? 
Because there's this reality that you will gain in proportion to what you invest. Scripture speaks of it like this very often. Jesus will speak in terms of inspiring us with gratitude of looking for the treasure in heaven that comes at the end. And and so uh, scripture will, will, will talk in terms of how much yield do you want? In Galatians, we're told he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows much will reap much. This is why Jesus said, sell your possessions and and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the Bible teaches this principle. What we give here results in honor, reward, and gain in the uh, the kingdom to come. And so it's used to inspire us with gratitude. By the way, we will always be inspired to give more when it's not just law, but inspired by gratitude. And this is a lot of times what the New Testament does. So all Christians have some way that we are to participate in giving. But the point of the text here is... Some people have the spiritual gift of giving. So, how do you know if you have the spiritual gift of giving? Well, it would be along the same kinds of lines of how do you know if you have a teaching gift? Or administration? Or exhortation? Or encouragement? The question is this. Do you have a large share of the talent it takes, the resource it takes to be able to do this? So do you have a large portion of what it takes to be able to do this thing? Here's the principle. Jesus said this on a number of occasions and applies it to a bunch of different situations. Jesus said numerous times, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is expected. That principle is applied to all kinds of things. In uh, Luke 12, it's applied to knowledge of the truth to whom much to whom to whom those are given much knowledge of the truth like maybe if you were born in a place called America and we had access to 10,000 sermons and books online okay there's a greater expectation and uh, expectation obligation by God that we produce fruit in accordance with the amount of knowledge of the truth that we have been given This is applied to opportunities and talents when it comes to the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. For someone who is given a large share of, you know, pick your gift, the teaching, uh, the, the mercy gift, that kind of thing, there is an expectation that there be fruit produced in proportion to the amount of the talent that God has given to the amount of the grace that God has given. And this is used in regard to money as well, to whom God ordains that great resources are at their disposal. There is a greater expectation that they give and use those resources in proportion in a way that matches with the gift that God has given. If God gives you great amounts of resources, there's an expectation that we use that grace in his service and in proportion. 
It's not evil to have wealth. We always need to make sure we clarify that. Never misunderstand. It's not evil to have wealth. The Bible does give the warning that wealth comes with danger. We are always echoing that. Wealth comes with danger. That is there. But it's not evil to have wealth. God blesses some Christians to have certain skill sets that enables them to make great amounts of money. That's not a bad thing. That's something to rejoice in. But we do need to know why that exists. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 gives a lot of teaching about uh, giving that is there. There's, there's a whole lot there. Two chapters just filled with theology about it. And some of what we're told is, is, you know, God does not bless certain Christians with great resources in order to live richly, but in, then in order to be useful to those who have little. God has ordained that there be some Belizean Christians with little and then American Christians with much and he's ordained it that there is to be a giving and sharing that takes place. God has ordained, and each of those, by the way, is a test. Each of them is a test. For those who have little, will they bless the name of God? For those who have much, will they honor the name of God by viewing money rightly and treating money rightly? Now, in talking about this, so how do you know if you have the spiritual gift of giving? I was tempted to take like the next 30 minutes to prove to us, just to try to convince us something you've heard me say before. We who live right here, you're hearing my voice and we live here in this place in this day. Christian, you are rich. You are wealthy. Look at the rest of the world. Look at history. We are dripping and oozing with wealth and resources. Okay, visit Peru and see the children digging for their food out of the trash heaps. Visit Belize and see the conditions Learn of our brothers and sisters who live in some of those unmentionable places of persecution. See the conditions they live in. It's one of the things that we who read the Bible and understand some things, we should not fall for the political games that are constantly played where a politician comes along and tries to make us feel sorry for ourselves because of just how hard it is these days you know, to live in this kind of thing. We should not fall for that kind of nonsense. We should have a perspective that understands reality. We are dripping with wealth. And what that means is that we have an expectation. What that means is we have an obligation. So as we read this, we are to know um, that if we live in this time in this place, there is an expectation that we have. Now, still yet, there are those that have even more and a spiritual gift for these things. But for just a second, consider, you know, Richard Wormbrand, I've told you about him before, a pastor living in Russia when the communists took over and he was arrested and put in a Soviet prison, he and other Christians for their opposition to the wickedness that was taking place. They were tortured on a regular basis. The Richard Wormbrand and the other Christians in prison, they would take the food rations that they were given and it was meager. The rations that they were given would be the rotting vegetables and the old bread, sometimes turning moldy bread, thrown into the prisoners, the, the stuff that the soldiers didn't want to eat. The Christians in the prison would tear off a tenth and they would give it to the weakest in each of the cell. 
And that's how they wanted to honor God in the little things because they saw this principle, whatever God gives, we want to honor him with it. If that is the basic Christian give, then we who have so much have a greater obligation. There are three categories of things that scripture shows us that we are to give to. Now listen, there are thousands of ministries and people we can give to, but it would fall into three categories. The care of the needy, and you know, there's a lot of different kinds of needy, but the care of the needy, the cause of the gospel globally, and then the support of your church. We who have so much need to make sure that all three, we are contributing to all three of these categories, okay? We need to make sure that we, we are participating in all three of these. And, and I, I get it, you know, living where we do and we don't see homeless people on a daily basis. It's the kind of thing that we can just kind of forget about, okay? We need to make sure that we are participating in the giving to all three of these kinds of things. But even though this is the case, all who hear my voice have wealth, still yet even to our culture, there are some who have an even greater gift of giving. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17, addressed to those. So here's Paul telling Timothy in his teaching, here is, here's another group you're supposed to teach and here's what you're supposed to say. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all, good, with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Spiritual gift number six is that of leadership. Notice in verse eight, the way that it's worded there, simple phrase, he who leads with diligence. Some believers have been created, designed, ordained by God to have leadership abilities. And amongst those who do, like all the other gifts, some more and some less. And notice the descriptor that's used with this one. So he says, he who leads is to do so with diligence. Diligence and effort really is the great determining factor uh, between mediocrity and excellence when it comes to leadership. This isn't the only one that we could attach with this. You know that, but that's the case with all the other ones as well. This isn't the only descriptor that could be used, but it is the most significant. It is the most significant. You know, Solomon could have had all kinds of abilities and all kinds of wisdom but if he hadn't exerted the effort uh, to do what he did um, with uh, great tenacity and grit and diligence, all his wisdom would have just gone to waste. He wouldn't have led the nation with the wisdom and the greatness that he did. And by the way, not only is a leader to do what they do in their work with diligence, but there's also effort that a leader is to be giving to the personal growth as a leader in those kinds of skills as well. Uh, my mentor is uh, pretty often says something along these lines. He says, there is no excuse for a poor preacher remaining a poor preacher. Do the work that's necessary to become a better preacher. Well, the same kind of thing can apply to leadership as well. 
Um, if a leader within the church stays at the same place for five years, something you know that's not happening is the effort to grow in those skills. Now, the Bible is genius. We say that a lot. I mean, it is the word of the living God, the infinitely wise God to mankind. So, of course, it's perfectly true. But again and again, we're amazed when we see the wisdom that is there. And there is that wonder. And, and the Bible's wisdom from God can be seen in, in this topic as well, this subject right here. We often don't understand how the word of God has contributed to good in the world in a massive global kind of way. So, so similar to, you've heard me say, the basic instruction of the Bible of the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, that that idea has spread across the world and, and blessed nations and cultures even that reject the Bible, still even that idea has brought good. Well, in a similar kind of way, the leadership principles that are taught in the Bible um, have contributed to good in the world. Christians have informed the world and even empires how leaders are to behave and even how to lead well. We'll do a little bit more talking about this just kind of leadership and authority in general when we come to Romans 13, which is addressing government. We'll talk about order and God's plans in general. But if you think of how it is that the Bible has contributed, you know, here's a, a giant understatement. The Bible is the greatest leadership book in all of history, okay? It has contributed, has taught the world leadership principles. If you are a leader, this would include parents, especially fathers. You ought to spend some significant time in those places in the Bible that specifically give these leadership principles and instruct. You ought to spend great amounts of time in the book of Nehemiah. That that one book alone, 13 brief chapters, has more leadership truth than the millions of pages produced by the world. But there's also really good stuff in the life of Moses, the life of Joshua, First and Second Samuel with the life of David, First and Second Kings. We're going to be seeing a whole bunch of good and bad examples of kings and principles that come out there. The New Testament has leadership principles that are there. If you are a leader, you ought to get very familiar with these things. Christians have all kinds of ways where this instruction applies. All kinds of ways, all kinds of offices and roles that Christians can serve in, even outside of these walls. Business owners. CEOs, bosses, managers, supervisors, presidents, generals, commanders, kings, fathers, mothers, school teachers, men who lead volunteer construction projects at small churches in Indiana, pancake baking crew at the fall festival. Okay, like just all kinds of ways that this can be done. And if you are involved, you ought to exercise your leadership in a way that honors God, imitates Christ, and is done with diligence. But this passage here is most specifically addressing those leadership positions within the local church. There are some various offices and roles where leadership is required. One of the more obvious ones is uh, the office of pastor. Um, we, we use the word pastor most of the time, but understand that in the Bible, um, that's not the most common word that's used. Pastors only use one time actually in the New Testament. The most common words are first elder, which was a leadership position from the Old Testament. Jewish culture, it was brought into the church. 
Second is overseer. That's the second most commonly used word for pastor there. That obviously implies some leadership and then shepherd. So it is an office that requires leadership. But we also see deacons empowered in the New Testament to manage areas of responsibility that the church uh, authorizes them to, to have certain areas of responsibility. It's the case that churches will call upon others to lead in various kinds of ways. And those who do are to fulfill their ministry. That's a biblical phrase. Fulfill your ministry with diligence. Fulfill your ministry in a way that is faithful and, and, and effort, excellence, diligence used in the exercise of the work. And I want you to think about this. Jesus loves his people and loves his glory. He loves his people. And because of this, he gives what is quite frankly some very daunting and terrifying instructions to the church's leaders. Negligence in shepherding and leading the people of God is just unacceptable to Jesus. Weak amounts of effort, it's just unacceptable. He's not okay with it. You ought to see it as a measure of the love that Jesus has for you and Jesus has for his glory. The, the, the daunting commands and instructions that he gives to the church's leaders. It, it, it is a terrifying thing to think of the overwhelming instruction and care that he calls the leaders to fulfill. In one of the world wars, there were a group of civilians who were fleeing German soldiers and they were racing to try to cross a borderline into a safety zone when one of the women in the group were, were hit and went down. There was a soldier standing in the safety zone and saw what happened. And so he got out and he sprinted onto the battlefield into enemy territory, knowing the almost certain cost of what it would take. He reached the woman and he scooped her up in his arms and began to sprint back towards the safety zone when he was, as expected, shot in the back by the enemy. But just through sheer determination, he kept his legs pumping. And as bullet after bullet uh, entered his back, he refused to quit and just kept running, holding on to this woman and he, he fell across the finish line, dying of his wounds, but delivering the woman to safety. There is in that a biblical picture of what Jesus wants the church's leaders to be doing. There is in that a picture of what Jesus himself has done. Jesus, who bore the pain, bore the lashes, bore the nails, bled for his people. Do you know what 1 Peter 5 and other places says? The church's leaders on earth are to imitate the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd who bled for the people. The chief shepherd who leads his people out of love. This is what all the various ministers, pastors, evangelists, missionaries, deacons, laborers within the church. It's this kind of idea we are to keep in our minds, this kind of picture as we lead the people of God. This is what he expects. This is what he wants. There's a bride to deliver. 
there's, there's a job that is to be performed of bringing the people of God safely to the end. And Christian, it is no wasted life to give of yourself to the weight of caring for the people of God so that they come to the end. Lead, for you who are involved in these positions, lead with diligence. And then lastly, number seven, the gift of mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, what is this spiritual gift, this showing of mercy? Well, this would include those types of good works, the type of service where ministry to the hurting is given. Ministry to the hurting and hurting of, of various kinds. Ministries where sympathy, pity, compassion, warm-hearted affection on the hurting, the helpless, the, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the sick, the faint-hearted, the despairing, the forgotten, the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, etc., etc., where this kind of care is given. Some examples would be those who visit the sick in order to lift their spirits, those who visit the faint-hearted to bring encouragement, those who foster and adopt, those who work with mentally handicapped, those who participate in ministries to the poor, those who care for the elderly and shut-ins, those who give medical care, those who care for abused women, those who care for molested children, those who sit at the bedside of the dying and sing hymns. Christian, there is a world that exists that at least in this place, in this culture, the majority doesn't even know about. This is a cursed and broken world. And the brokenness produces hurt. And a lot of times hurt of such a level, it's hard to even fathom that it exists. Molested children, raped women, abused molested those dying young we haven't even left our county yet the average person where we live gravely misunderstands the world gravely misunderstands and we can tell it by the pop culture and the constant conversation that's just always painting the world with this chipper brush stroke everything's okay Okay, okay, yeah, there's little bits of bad and little pockets of bad, and that's a shame. But hey, everything's okay. You know, just try to tell that to some of the people who are really living in just some of the awful things that happen. And you know, I don't try to be like dramatic for dramatic sake, but to try to inform, try, that, that just kind of chipper idea. Try to tell that to the little girl whose father rapes her every day. Tell that to the 10-year-old who's dying of leukemia and, and knows that they're dying and is trying to figure out life and death. Tell that to the young mother whose little one-year-old has their organs shutting down and watching their baby die. This is not a good world. It's a broken world filled with heartache and hurt. And historically, from the beginning of the church's existence, Christians were the world's pioneers of stepping into the brokenness. Historically, Christians, we have been the ones to, there's hard things, there are trenches. We go to the trenches rather than shield ourselves from it. 
Christians have been the ones who cared for the dying in the streets of Rome. Christians were the ones who adopted the orphans in the Roman Empire. Christians have been the ones who fought to end the selling of little girls into the sex slave industry of India. Christians brought about the end of the African slave trade in Europe. Christians gave the world hospitals and orphanages and just in general, humanitarian aid. But in the last century, something happened. Not entirely. We always know there's a remnant. There's always a group of churches who are doing what honors God. But in many ways, and especially here, the church has left the realm of ministering to the broken. And a lot of times there's just kind of that common assumption there are professionals to handle those things. You know, with everything that I just mentioned, well, there's a professional for that. You know, somebody else who knows what they're doing and we kind of want it to stay out of sight and out of mind. It is needed for Christians to once again be known as the people who step into the darkness, who step into the hurt, who, do, who don't fill our lives with just the endless pursuit of comfort, but who intentionally go to what is uncomfortable, go into the trenches where things do get messy where it does get chaotic, go into the darkness and the hurt and bring the light and the hope of the gospel and practical help. We bring the gospel and we bring food. We bring the gospel and we bring clothing. We bring the gospel and we bring care and protection. So like many of the gifts that we've mentioned, mercy is a work that all believers are to participate in in some way. You know there is a mountain of verses that call on us to care for the widow, the orphan, the faint-hearted, the oppressed, the broken, gracious. Uh, he who is gracious to the needy honors his maker. He who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. There's a verse to remember. Matthew 25, those chilling Words that Jesus speaks on the day of judgment to those who are cast into the everlasting torment. He says, you did not visit the sick. You did not feed the hungry. You, you did not visit the despairing prisoner. You, you did not clothe the naked and et cetera and et cetera. Jesus told us when you throw a party, don't invite, don't just invite all your friends. Okay, it's not, it's like it's evil, but he said, Invite the lame and the sick and the forgotten and the downcast that you may have treasure in heaven. So every believer, there, there are ways, there are ways that we are all to participate, but there are believers with the gift of mercy, the spiritual gift where they are especially enabled, empowered, and gifted by God to be able to do this in a way that is most helpful. And, and what those believers have, you know, and some of this is our human interpretation as we're looking in, the people who are able to do it and do it well, what is it that they have? Well, it could be a number of things. There are some Christians who aren't all that emotional, like they don't have great bursting affections, but they just simply see the master told me to do this. I, I, I'm going to obey him. And so they step into her and they minister. But it's oftentimes that there are those with the spiritual gift of mercy who they've been through something in their life. They have hurt deeply and they now want to help others who are going through hurt. 
and what they have been through uniquely helps them to be able to minister and say things and be able to say, I've been where you've been, that all of that is in 2 Corinthians 1 we're told about. It's also the case, God gives some Christians just big hearts. Big hearts filled with compassion. They're able to feel pity and sympathy in a way that a lot of us sometimes struggle with. And they, they just have this yearning desire, I want to help. I want to help. And so they step in and they serve. Maybe other kinds of ways, but, but just notice this. And I, throughout this, one of the things I've tried to emphasize is this reality, the strengths and weaknesses of the body of Christ. You know, for the, for the church to be built, we all wish we were perfect, but that doesn't happen. We all wish we had all of the gifts and all of them flowing in abundance, but that doesn't happen. And so the reality is we have some believers who may be very, very knowledgeable and they give doctrinal carefulness to the church, but maybe don't have the biggest hearts filled with affection. But there are also believers who maybe struggle with discernment, but God has given them big hearts. And they're some of the ones who are regularly sounding the trumpets that a lot of times we forget. They'll sound the trumpet to remember, hey guys, don't forget there are children who need adopted. Guys, don't forget there are babies being murdered. Guys, don't forget the, the hungry need fed. And they raise this awareness. I know that's an overused cliche, but there is a way in which this really does exist that they remind the church of our obligation to be serving. The church needs all of these gifts contributing for the, for the building up of the body. And we need to be careful that we not despise each other when we see our weaknesses, but rejoice in God when we see the gifts that are there. And then you notice the descriptor that is used for this one. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The Greek word there is hilaros. You can guess the English word we get from that. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing though, okay? The, the link there is cheer. It's the same word that is used in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. God loves a cheerful giver, meaning not begrudgingly, not like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I have to. I feel guilty if I don't kind of thing. God loves a cheerful giver. And those who show mercy are to do so not begrudgingly, but with joy, with hope. They have hope in their hearts and they bring a lifting out of discouragement and despair to others that they minister to. There is to be a willingness and let me sound a trumpet here that we may need to, to raise many more times in years to come, depending on what happens. The state of Indiana has around uh, 50 what are called uh, baby boxes. If you're familiar with these, this is where a girl can bring a baby and give it up for adoption. Our town, the town of Ferdinand, actually has one. These are not used all that often, but just imagine... If Roe versus Wade is overturned, as we're praying that it will be, and if the state of Indiana outlaws abortion, as we're praying it will, then it is at least possible. We can't predict the future and know what will happen, but it is at least possible that these will be used more, which means there will be more need for Christians 
to step up. The need is already there for foster families for adoption. And I know I've just brought up babies, but also know that a lot of times uh, it, it is some of the older children who are the forgotten and neglected ones. The need is there. The need may be increasing. Christian, I, I just beg you to begin considering what it is that we can do to contribute and to serve. We Christians need to be the people again, stepping into the hurt. And so if you feel a burden for this, if the Holy Spirit puts that, that tugging, that conviction, that stirring in your heart, maybe it's even a flint faced kind of desire, like I'm going to serve. Don't let the excuses talk you out of it. We, we can do that in a thousand ways. We can talk ourselves out of a thousand good works. Um, one of the big ones is finances. You're never going to have enough money to feel secure in, in doing all kinds of ministries. It's never going to be there. Just trust God. You do what's right. He will provide. All kinds of other ways we can come up with to talk ourselves out of good works. Don't let your flesh do it. Serve in the ministry of mercy and those who do it, do it with cheerfulness. And then let me just say a word kind of concluding this list of spiritual gifts here. I want to ask you, Christian, We've, lo we've looked at this whole list. I want to ask you a, a, an applicational kind of question. Are you, individual Christian, are you serving in a significant, regular, weekly kind of way that you are blessing the church family to the building up of the body of Christ? It really is a constant battle that the church faces. It's just one, it's an over, this is in every church, this is an ongoing kind of thing, that there will be a small group who, who works so much and has so, so much going that they teeter on the brink of stressed out, burnout, uh, all this, and they can be tempted to bitterness sometimes when they see folks that are not laboring. And then there will oftentimes be a great deal who aren't doing something significant on a weekly kind of basis. We don't want that to be the case. I want to ask you, Christian, is there a regular and significant way that you are contributing? If you really don't know how to do that, come, come talk with me. People do that from time to time and just say, I want to serve. I don't know how. Come have that conversation. Pastor Ben and I would be happy to point you to some of the directions. Right now, um, we do have a need of some more workers for Vacation Bible School. This is one of those that is required to be a, to be a member, to serve in the leadership kinds of roles there. But there's a practical kind of need that is there. Serve your church family. Work for the building up of the body of Christ. Jesus is glorifying his name by the building of the body of Christ. And you got to believe it's not a wasted life to give of yourself to serving your church family. We are the household of God. And let me use this as the transition into the time of partaking the Lord's Supper. Sometimes the Lord's Supper is referred to as communion. And the reason that it is, is because that's one of the things, there are numerous things that the Lord's Supper pictures and preaches. One of the things that it shows is the whole idea of the fellowship that is shared when people share a meal together. We have in this, this picture that church families gather and I know it's a symbolic meal. None of us are going to get full on what we eat, but it is a symbolic meal. We share food together. We share a meal. We share fellowship in the presence of God. We share fellowship and we share fellowship with God. 
God, let this be one of the truths that you remember as we partake. We are a church family gathered. What unites us together is that we receive Christ. All of that is pictured as we partake of food in the Lord's Supper. Some of the warnings that we need to give are, Scripture tells us, as you participate, if, if you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper with us, we are to examine ourselves and partake in a way that's not in an unworthy kind of way. All of us have sinned in the last week. All of us have things we need to confess. None of us comes to the table perfectly, but we are to be careful that we come with a repentant heart. So confess sin. Uh, lower yourself before God once again. And if you have never turned to Christ to be saved... What the Bible says is that you ought not partake of this meal, not because there's cruelty of any kind, but you are on the outside of the family of God. You're not on the inside. We want you to be on the inside. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved and believe you have to be saved and bow and submit to him. You need to be baptized, showing the world that you are a follower of Christ, and then you may participate. But for today, if you have not turned, do not uh, partake in this. I'm going to give us about a minute of silence for a final time of praying for the confession of sins. I'll close us in prayer and then give some instructions. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice of yourself, your body, your blood that you offered for on our behalf. We pray that you will forgive us of our sins. Please look on us with favor. We know that you have accomplished our eternal salvation, but we want our ongoing relationship with you to be right. Thank you for the access that you have given to the Father Help us as we remember what you have done in this time. Amen. Let me ask uh, Pastor Ben and my dad, if you guys will come forward, please, to help with the elements. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.